0: Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially, one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Launching a business can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Today I talked to Tatiana Swar, author of Dream Bold, Start Smart, about how to build a strong foundation and solid game plan, including understanding the numbers. If you want to start a business, if you want to launch your own venture, this conversation is for you. Enjoy. Tatiana, welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. Can we start our conversation with what are some of the things that are motivating you in life right now? And what are two or three things you want to make sure we get across to the listeners in our conversation today?
1: The things that motivate me really are the same every day, every year is light at the end of the tunnel and that light can come in different forms and different shapes and for me i've always been been learning i've always been developing myself and investing in myself and so for me that's the the motivator the motivator is to know more to be better to serve better and so that's really my main motivation and that's what kind of gets me up in the morning and on your second question was um what we can share with the listeners or focus on sharing with the listeners today is this pursuit of learning. I think that it's very important to always be learning, to always be developing, because as soon as you stop doing that, you already are behind in, in many ways. It can be in business, it can be in life, it can be in the financial stability or whatever it is. I think that it's super, super important to to learn, and especially when it comes to money numbers and taxes.
0: Yeah, agreed. The and that's why I love talking about learning and growth, personally, professionally, and financially. And too many people focus on just one bucket or the other. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to talk mostly through your book: "Dream Bold, Start Smart, Be Your Own Boss, and Make Money Doing What You Love." So we're going to talk through that. Lots of questions. Great read. It will help anyone who wants to start their own business. And. One of the things that jumped out at me right away, early in the book you wrote, it re- It took you 10 years to realize what business owners were really missing, know what the steps are before you actually start a business, and then understand how to run that business when it comes to money, numbers, and taxes. What was it that led you to that realization after 10 years?
1: So for about 10 years, I've worked with small businesses from different industries, different leader with different leadership styles and just a completely different businesses. Every business is different and no two businesses are alike. And so I've worked with businesses for a number of years and, and I got to see their, the most intimate part of it all, which is finances. And so I put two and two together. I looked at how people make decisions, how they grow, how they succeed or not based on what's happening in their Money, numbers, and tax area of their business. And about five years ago, I made a decision to stop working with startups. And the reason was that typically startups didn't need someone like me up upfront. Need they didn't? They just needed some basic stuff done right. And also, they often didn't have the budget for someone like me. So, w- but at the same time, what I saw was I saw that. When people, experienced business owners would come to me, which is typically the way the relationship starts and happens with my firm, when they would come to me, I would look at their books, their taxes, their whole scenario, situation, and think to myself, if only they could have skipped all of that trouble, all of that heartbreak, all of those mistakes, if only they started better. Uh, and so that's kind of what prompted me to, to write a book because I stopped working with startups. But at the same time, I saw how transformational the advice and the support that I provide to my clients is for their businesses and their lives because ultimately business is personal. And I saw how transformational it was. And I, and I thought to myself, with the book, that is a roadmap for someone who's starting a business, wants to start a business or have been at it for a year or two and just isn't sure about how to proceed, how to move forward. I thought that it would be a really great uh, resource. And this way I can transform even more lives than I can with working one-on-one with clients.
0: Nice. And, And when one of these clients walks into your office, They may say they're looking for tax or accounting advice, but what you often hear is, I need clarity and confidence in my business idea and in managing the back end of my business. What do
1: you mean by that? Usually people don't realize or know that they need help with managing their back end. They usually come because they have to. People hate dealing with taxes. They hate dealing or thinking about bookkeeping or taxes or everything. Even accountants, the firm I used to work for years ago, about a decade ago actually, partners would do their own taxes on the last day of October 15th, which is the extended day. It was the last possible day to get your taxes done. Everyone hates doing their taxes and dealing with that and thinking about it. So, and paying taxes, of course. And so it really uh for me, uh, they never clients never ask, I want transformation because they don't know. They don't know that it's possible. They don't know that there are accountants who can really support you in a way that's done for you. Something that will not only get the compliance part out, meaning get the bookkeeping, get the taxes done right without mistakes, but also actually advise you. And I think it comes from the mindset of think, considering yourself as a business. I mean, for a number of years, I did not consider my own practice as a business and accountants and doctors and lawyers often fall into the same trap where it's a practice, it's not a business. What that means is you just sell your time for money. Uh, Whereas a business is when you create systems, when there's top client demand, when there is a unique offering in a business. And so when they come to me, they usually say, I'm looking for a new accountant. And so we start the discovery process, uh, which is what I call the work that I do, discovery process. we look at, okay, what is your goal for this business? Do you want to sell it in five years, maybe 10 years? Do you want to keep running it? What is the overall goal for your life? Do you? When do you want to retire? When? How much money do you need to retire? What do you see as your retirement life? And often, what I hear is people saying, "Nobody ever asked me that," or their financial planners would ask them that. But financial planners don't have the ability to support a business as a coach, uh, which is what I focus on.
0: And. So you're taking a bit more of a holistic approach to their business and trying to match their long-term goals and desires with the financial planning and analysis and coaching that you're doing there, Tatiana?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So what I've found was there are clients who have a bookkeeper that's one person, a CPA who's another person a coach who's a third person then a wealth manager fourth person maybe a couple of more people in the mix and and becomes kind of this challenge to coordinate the advice of all these people uh the more progressive accountants now typically incorporate all of that in one and so they work with like my practice I work with or business I work with less clients a lot less clients than a typical accountant and because of that I'm able to provide holistic support to them and i'm amazed at how we as accountants are ignorant to the fact that we think that people know some of the basic stuff. Like what's deductible? What's not deductible? What's the best way to purchase uh, properties if you are looking to invest in real estate? What's the best way to structure that in terms of entities? And coaching, when I provide coaching, which is typically the typical scenario now with every package that I work with um, in terms of working with clients, I answer answer their question and I tell them that there's no... Uh, What's that that expression? The silly question is the one that's never asked, or something, or something like that. So there's no question that's too silly or perceived silly. Or there's things that you have to know as a business owner, and the uh, the coaching aspect is the ability for them to be able to do that with no shame. And besides that, of course, I mean, I was a bookkeeper first uh, when I started my career in general, and so my bookkeeping background is very strong. And I believe that bookkeeping is the cornerstone of any business. And typically, I start with uh, an overhaul of their bookkeeping and review and making it perfect and their compliance to be done right. And that's really the support that they are looking for. But they love, the clients love the coaching aspect of it more than anything, because they don't care. I mean, they don't care that the about the taxes, how perfect their tax return is, but they do care about how successful their business is, how they can use the power of numbers to make a business decision, which is ultimately the goal. Can you tell me more? Use the power of numbers to make business decisions. What does that look like? So that's where bookkeeping starts to play a critical role. Properly and correctly done bookkeeping, which is very rarely the case for a small business, is the cornerstone of, of the business decision-making. And the reason is that I use Systems and it doesn't have to be any specific software, but it. Uh, I use. I primarily use QuickBooks Online, but I um, mean, I manage companies from anywhere from hundred thousand to twenty five million in QuickBooks Online as a financial uh, uh, hub. I guess is the right word, and I believe in the power of numbers. And I want to tell you a little story, if that's okay. So when I was seventeen, I went to Germany for uh, for a school trip, and it was my first time abroad. And German school took us to a water park, and I grew up in. A Soviet country, so we there were no water parks. So for me, it was a big deal. It was an indoor water park, and I really had a blast there. You know, I was um, on the slides up and down a hundred times. I think people maybe thought I was a little crazy, but anyway, kind of closer to the end of the day, I noticed a huge swimming pool kind of to the side of the park, and I went to take a look. And it kind of you know looked deep off the edge, and there was a diving tower next to it that didn't seem so high uh, from the ground. And I think that that's kind of how business, starting a business is perceived. It, it's just uh, starting a business. It doesn't seem so, so high or so hard to do. And so I went up the stairs somewhere kind of halfway through uh, or in the middle of the staircase, I guess, I started losing my breath. So it got a little harder than I thought. By the time I got to, uh, to the top, I was out of breath completely. And uh, there were a couple of people in front of me. So I had to wait. And so I was able to catch my breath. And then I came to, when I, I got my turn, I came to the edge of this high dive board. Uh, it was a, about 33 foot high. There were three boards and I, of course, went for the top one. I came to the edge of that board and I looked down and I got scared. It was really high and it looked really deep uh, from the top. And so I remember thinking I wanted to, to leave actually, but then I saw people behind me from school. Some of them were from from our school. And I thought that they would shame me, you know, for for being a chicken. And I was standing there wiggling my toes. And I suddenly, I was always good at math, but um, I remembered my math teacher always used to say that math saves lives. And it sounded silly when she said that, you know, especially to a teenager. But as I was standing at the edge of that board, I was ashamed to turn back. But at the same time, I was looking for justification of, of what the creative side of me, the right brain side of me wanted to do to be careless. And I mean, not careless, but more adventurous, I guess, uh, is the right word. And I thought, this thought popped in my head that, you know, if someone built this board at this height, that means they already ran the numbers. They already did the math. And so I shouldn't die, uh, which is what I was afraid of. And so I was actually, it was the first time in my life when I pushed my fear aside intentionally, and I've experienced that same feeling many times in my life when I was making decisions. But then when you have the support of numbers, when, you know, businesses start, are started by visionaries, by creatives, by right brain people, right? And many, the reason that 50% of them fail in over five years, which is a well known statistic is that their vision is not supported by the left side of the brain, which is the numbers side, right? The logical, the linear thinking, the not so fun part kind of of the business side. And I think that it's every time I talk about making decisions in business, I refer back to the diving board because that's exactly what it feels like. Starting a business is jumping into something that's unknown and scary and potentially dangerous, something that can kill you. But it's um important to remember that numbers will give you the power, the support, the vetting of what, either your business idea or your business decision. And that's where the power of numbers come in. When you look at your past numbers, you can see trends, you can see kind of unexpected indicators, potentially, you can see expected indicators as well. And you can also using the past, you can not necessarily predict the future, but you can at least create a reference point, a baseline. And that's where making decisions, looking into the future, I think is important using the power of numbers.
0: So when it comes to money and numbers, there's a lot of myths that people have. And I love you shared four of them. The first one is is always fun. I don't have time for this. I'll deal with it later. Can you dive into that myth and why it's such a challenge for people like you and me?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's this whole attitude of uh, fake it till you make it. That startups in the Silicon Valley kind of is a little guilty of. I mean, we're not pointing fingers here, but, but certainly that's, that's where it came from in the Silicon Valley. And I know this firsthand, meaning, um, actually, well, I guess secondhand, I've worked with a few companies in the Silicon Valley and I've have friends who have startups and work for startups in the Silicon Valley. And the idea is to fake it till you make it, till so you make it as a next Facebook or the next whatever, something. And there's this attitude of, and I don't know even where it comes from, but like, let's say small business owners, people who are just starting freelance. Oh, I didn't make any money, so I don't have to file. Yes, you do. (laughs) And actually you can get audited if you don't. And because it's it's typically something that triggers an audit, even if it's a small amount. So uh, the idea that I support, I guess, and uh, promote is... To not fake it till you make it, to face it and face it early in your business, because the sooner you face the challenge in terms of money, numbers, and taxes, the sooner you understand that you have to deal with it to be successful, the sooner you will be successful. I have this client, and I talk about him in the book as well on a, from a different angle, a different perspective, but I have this client who has been in business for, I think now, 20, maybe eight, 29 years. And so it took him about 15 years to get to a point where he said, okay, I need to, I'm not becoming an accountant, which just to be clear, that's the idea. You're not becoming an accountant. We don't want you to be an accountant because you would have to go to school to get to do that. But what you need to do is you need to figure out your own numbers routine. And what that means is you create tools that allow you to assess the health, financial health of your business to handle the taxes, to handle, to know, and to take responsibility for for those things and be on top of them. Just understand, okay, I need to get the taxes done. So this client actually is the first one usually who sends me all the tax information because it's just how he is. He wants to be on top of things. He wants to be responsible for it. And it's really important to do it this way. It's really important to face it. But here's the thing. It took him 15 years to understand. How badly he needed to face the numbers, how badly he needed to learn some of the basic things. He can, you know, deal with the QuickBooks, uh, he's not an accountant, he can't do the stuff like reconciliation and tax preparation, and he doesn't want to do to do that. But he knows how important past numbers are and future numbers are to his business. Planning ahead. Can I afford to hire this person? I don't know. I think I can. But then with numbers, with a cash flow projection, you can actually know for sure that you can or cannot do that. And so that's really my whole message. And I hope that it's received as such is to not fake it till you make it. It's really important to face your numbers. And here's the thing. This same client once said, accountants don't start businesses, visionaries do. He told me that. And he was right because any every business starts with a vision. The problem is that the second part of the equation, the money numbers and taxes side, the logical, the left brain, sometimes never makes it. And that's why we have such a high rate of business failures in the US. Because people think, I'm not good at math. I've never been good at math. If I wanted to be good at math, I would go and become a mathematician. But the truth is that in the money numbers and tax aspect of a business, it's simple algebra. It's adding one plus two. It's really not that complicated. But the attitude, the mindset of of really uh, facing it and facing it early is important to adopt, I guess, in the very beginning. And I've seen successes of people who've done that. Yes, sometimes it's a slower success. Sometimes it's a slower growth, but it's a much more confident growth. There's no anxiety related to it. There's no guesswork. It's step-by-step growth and development and profit that actually transforms your life because you're building a business that's sustainable and it actually addresses your goals.
0: And one of the things like you talked about how really what we do, it's not that complicated, but that can also be a challenge because it's not that complicated for you or me because that's what we've trained to do. But a lot of people just think I can do it myself. I'll just figure it out. What are some of the biggest problems you see when people take that route without going and getting the professional help? to make sure they are making the right decisions?
1: So I think the initial challenge is the budget for a professional. And typically in the beginning, people shop for a price as opposed to quality. And that's kind of another reason why, or sub-reason that I wrote the book is I wanted to provide a roadmap or a guidebook that actually will tell you, okay, here's where you need to pay attention. Here's the accountant that you need at different stages of your business here's how you price, here's how you deal with taxes and understand things, here's what you need to learn to be successful. And I think that in the beginning, when you shop price, uh, you will get what you pay for. And that's the unfortunate uh, reality, but that's, that's just how it is. And so you can get the professional who doesn't care about whether you make it or not. All they care about is making money today off of whatever it is, the task that they're performing for you, whether it's bookkeeping or tax preparation, and you don't really get any good advice. And I still have clients who have this mindset. I still I have to remind them that before you make any decisions, talk to me. Talk to me first. Even if it's a silly question, even if it's a silly, simple decision uh, on the surface, talk to me, let's talk this through because any decision that involves money, whether it's past, present, or future money, Is important to address. And really when hiring a professional, you have to watch out for what it is that they're providing for you. The traditional accountants typically charge you one fee a year, whatever it is, you know, a thousand, two thousand, whatever, whatever the fee is. And here's the thing. Usually it's for tax preparation only. So when you ask for advice, because you're not really paying for that advice, they give you a quick version of it. And that quick version, unfortunately, really doesn't serve you well. And I think it's a disservice all around because they don't get paid, they have to spend time, but you also get a quick version that's not necessarily right for you or tailored to you as a business and as a person. And so that's where they're also part of the problem is. And so when, when I work with, that's the reason why I don't work with startups is because they typically don't have a budget for someone like me. And they only need some basics that are pretty much the same for everyone. Then as you grow, as you develop, and as you make money, you need an advisor. And also, I guess the mindset shift part of it is understanding that everyone needs a coach. My business was transformed by hiring a coach. And before that, like a couple of months before that, I thought, what can a coach possibly teach me? Like, I'm already so good. I know it all. I know I've done it for years. And so this attitude. Of constant learning, of constant developing yourself, I think is super important in in that aspect as well. Don't think that you know it all. Don't think that Google knows it all. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of, there's a pool of misinformation out there. And if you make a decision based on Google's advice, then you get what you pay for, quote unquote.
0: And so let's take a, a step back and look at your personal life. You, When you started your company, you built up your client base slowly while you were still working so you could leave your full job without a financial meltdown, which sounds like a lot of planning, side hustling and sacrifice. You know, some people just call that luck. So can you tell me more about that process and and how you made the decision to shift from working for someone to being your own business?
1: I think it was destiny. I do believe in destiny a little bit. But I remember I was was sitting down with my dad, passed away last year, but uh, many years ago and was trying to convince him to move to the US. And he said, I need something to do. I'm an entrepreneur. I'll never work for somebody else. And I remember thinking about it and I thought, hmm, that's an interesting concept. I never considered myself that, an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. But when I, I kind of was pushed into entrepreneurship early in my career, I worked for, for two years. I worked as a bookkeeper for one firm and then another firm production. One was a door company. The other one was a plumbing company. And then I needed to, New York was, stand, was changing CPA rules uh, in 2009 in August. And so I needed to apply for the license before that so that I could get grandfathered in. And so I thought, okay, I need to really ramp up my school efforts to be able to graduate before that. And I was working and going to school at the same time. And my job at the time did not want to accommodate me a few days a week leaving early or coming in late so that I can finish my school. They didn't really care, which is fine, which I understand. So I had to leave the job and I decided, okay, I'm going to find a couple of, um, I'm going to find one part-time job for 25, 30 hours a week so that I can manage my schedule. And what actually happened was that there was a lot of demand for bookkeepers for a day a week or a, a day every two weeks or whatever. Sometimes it was two days a week for different clients. And so I ended up actually taking on about 45 hours of work But because it was spread out throughout the week, some some of it was done remotely, some of it was done uh, in person, but in different schedules. Because of that, I kind of learned really quickly how to manage my time. I mean, I graduated with the highest honors. And the reason was that I was so good at managing the time between the jobs, between the school work and, and so on and so forth. So I kind of was pushed into this entrepreneurial world. By the circumstances. And then when the time came, when I graduated, uh, I actually was a little heartbroken that I had to work for another CPA because that means working for somebody else. And I was already used to not necessarily working Mondays or, you know, whatever it was, or not used to really asking for someone's permission to go to the doctor or to go do whatever needs to get done and that's kind of how the initial push into it happened but then you know i went to work for a cpa firm because you have to get licensed experience so that you can get your own license but also it was really good tax experience and that's that was my first tax and audit experience and it was really transformational it was a small firm in new york city but they gave me hands-on experience from day 1 and so i don't regret that at all but within 6 months of working for them i knew that I'm an entrepreneur at heart and whatever it is, I'll make it work, but I'll never be able to work for somebody else. I need to run my own schedule. I need to run my own life. And um, if I want to um, take a quick trip to, I don't know, Aruba, I want to know that I don't have to ask someone else's permission. So I stayed there for about three years, got a lot of experience, got a lot of knowledge, made some contacts that I can rely on when I face a, a situation that I haven't seen before in tax sake. And that was really amazing. And, I, and as I was working for them, I was coming home and working, doing the work for my other clients. By that time, QuickBooks Online was already pretty strong, so you could work from anywhere. And so for me, it was really transformational time to to learn to to once again build my own dream. And so when I got pregnant, I, I knew that I didn't want to put my child through the horror of tax season. <laughs> Um, And so I quit and I remained as a consultant for, for some time and also built my own client base and really enjoyed being flexible and being with my kids. And that was really, for my life, was transformational.
0: That's wonderful. So let's dive into someone else wants to start their business. The first question that you say they should ask themselves, is my idea a good one?
1: Yeah, it's a really, uh, really important step, I think, kind of critical. And the reason that I put that into the book was because I've had numerous occasions. I only give one example in the book of that, but I've had numerous occasions of people, um, even my own husband, coming up with an idea. Oh, I have this great idea for a business. Okay, wait a second. Let's take a look at how you're going to actually make money. Who's going to pay you and why are they going to pay you? What does that business model look like? And why is it a Proposition that people can't say no to, and if it isn't, then it's maybe not such a good idea. I'm a big proponent of really having several businesses at the, at the same time, or several lines of revenue, several streams of revenue that come into your business, because I think that relying on only one is ignorant. And really, the idea that we sometimes sometimes come up with sounds good in theory, but here's what I encourage listeners and readers to think about. If you've ever painted anything, you know, a room, a house outside or inside or whatever, or maybe a fence, you know that the painting part is the fun part. It's, you know, it's cool using the roller or whatever (laughs) to paint. It's really cool. Even my kids say, oh, I'd love to help daddy paint X or whatever, you know. (laughs) But the problem is that before you can paint, you have to tape or scrub or whatever the, the surface requires. And that's the not so fun part. Let's, let's put it mildly. And that's what people hate doing. So when you think about your business idea, think a few steps ahead, kind of like in chess, think a few steps ahead. What would that look like? What would that business grow into or can grow into? And yes, you could still, you know, we plan, but, but uh, what's the expression? We plan, but God kind of does whatever he wants. Um, I don't know the exact expression, but that's the idea. We create plans that don't necessarily work. But the idea is to think this through with all of the pros and cons that a business can potentially be like. And I'll give you an example. This client of mine that I describe in the book, they've been very knowledgeable in the wine industry. They know wine really well. They can recommend a good wine for someone's taste and so on and so forth. And They decided to create a platform to skip the middle person, to have wine stores order directly from, let's say, small wineries in California, making it up. But who would pay for that? That's the question. Who would pay to use the platform? How can you grow that business into a different stream of revenue? You can't. Or you need to like maybe think this through and have several strategic sessions with yourself or with another, with your partner, with your coach potentially and really think this through. Because look at every single business that ever has become a success. So let's say Spanx. They started with shapewear and now they're doing all different kinds of other things. They're doing underwear, uh, lingerie or whatever. I don't even know what actually they, they do. They do a lot of other things. But that business grew because there was a strategic approach to that growth. So it's not just, oh, I'm selling shapewear that's, uh, that's really cool, that's cute, whatever. It was much more than that. It was deeper than that. So the question is, first, how are you going to make money? And second, how can you make money from peripheral businesses? That's what I encourage all of my clients to do. Um, Because think about an accounting business. Actually, I'll give you an example that may illustrate that better. I once interviewed for um, an attorney, uh, a trust and estate attorney, and he was doing taxes as well. And I asked him, you're an attorney, why are you doing taxes? This was over a decade ago. And he said, you know, when I prepare someone's will or design a trust situation or trust document or whatever, I actually pretty much never see them again. So it's a one-time client, one-time engagement, one-time thing. And then I have to chase for business again after that to, to, to sustain my living, to sustain my business. With tax returns, it's predictable revenue year after year, which makes perfect sense. Similarly, I don't believe in just having predictable revenue. I think that there has to be a healthy mix of both. And so in order to get to that, you have to really spend a lot of time strategizing on your business idea to really see if it's worth pursuing. And also one final point on that is you have to understand whether the taping side of it is worth the painting, meaning well, the opposite. The painting side is worth the taping. Sometimes you come up with a brilliant idea, and I've had, certainly had that in my, in my career, in my life, but you're like, you know what? It's a great idea. It's a great business for someone. It's just not for me. <laughs> because that taping is so painful and so uninteresting for you that you just don't want to do the painting. And so that litmus test for me is an important step in, in that whole process too.
0: So how many people come to you and you're having these conversations and they don't know how their business is going to actually make money, which seems fundamental.
1: You know, I think that my client, when he said that accountants don't start businesses, that visionaries start businesses, I think he was right. I uh, personally did not consider my business as a business until about five years ago, which was for some of my clients I I was having conversations, they thought it was bizarre that an accountant, CPA, MBA with all of the uh, accolades and credentials doesn't treat their own business as a business. I think it's applicable to a lot of professionals. Like I've mentioned, lawyers and doctors, it's called a practice, not a business. In a business, you leverage other people's time to make money and where you yourself stop selling or minimize selling your time for money. That's really what a business is in a nutshell. And I have this, this conversations, I don't no longer have these conversations. I only have them with friends and and acquaintances, but because I don't work with startups anymore, but in my coaching program, I do exactly that. And people have this idea, oh, I'm going to build a platform that will connect truck drivers to who have space in their truck to, I don't know, someone who needs to ship something from somewhere to somewhere else. Great. Who's going to pay for that? Okay thought process starting, something's boiling in your head. And, and that's kind of the process. And sometimes it comes out with good answer to that. Sometimes it doesn't. And if certainly see more of the doesn't than does uh, most of the time, the reason is that uh, we get so excited about the idea about our vision that we forget to do our due diligence, which is kind of my whole approach is it, entrepreneurship requires a whole brain approach, not just the vision, the right brain, but also the numbers and the logical and support and, and everything else, which is which is where if exercised correctly, you can actually build a successful business. Some people, and I talk about this in my book on partner, in a chapter on partners, some people try to avoid painful experience by getting a partner who manages the financial aspect of things. The problem is that oftentimes those partnerships break down and sometimes there is even theft and fraud going on. So I believe that even if you're in a partnership, you have to know exactly where every penny is going, where it's coming from and why, and how to make more of it. And it's so fundamental that um, that it's, it's interesting how people, I guess, not use, but um, I'm looking for a word, have this fear and anxiety related to the financial aspect of things, and they try to leverage their risk. By getting a partner or not addressing it at all or something else. And it's really, to me, it's really, I don't, anytime I have a conversation like that, I tell them that's not the right way. You have to learn the numbers, but you don't have to wait 15 years to get to that realization. You can actually do it today and skip the, all the anxiety that's related to that.
0: The, in there was something important you said in there with the difference between a practice and a business. And often in a practice, you're just selling your time. And one of the things I thought that was very valuable in the book was in 2018, you made a decision to stop selling your time, and instead, you started selling value. What was it that drove that decision for you? And can you talk about what that concept is for people? Because I think for a lot of... This is something I really try to emphasize with a lot of solopreneurs is you're not selling... An hourly rate, you're selling what you provide the other person. Can you share what that transition was like for you?
1: Um, absolutely. I uh, actually, in five, six years of being again on my own, after I quit the CPA firm, I actually realized that I was getting very busy, very busy, especially during tax season. But my bank account didn't get proportionately bigger. <laughs> And so that and so I thought something's wrong. Like I'm trying really hard. I'm working so hard. I'm doing all of this work. I'm constantly learning because as a CPA you have to do a continuing professional education, which I love because you get to learn new things and new concepts and new strategies and and tools. And so it's really a good a way to to I guess bring more value to your clients. But I realized there was something that was this award that I got that triggered this whole, I guess, psychological analysis in my head, I, um, in probably in May or June, I can't remember, of that year, I applied for the Intuit's Firm of the Future Award. And to apply for the award, you had to uh, describe a case, a client case, where you use technology to transform a business. And I described how I converted a budget feature in QuickBooks into a cash flow feature by doing a couple of tweaks. And so three months later, I get notified by Intuit that uh, I was a runner-up. So I made it to top 15 around the world. It's top three in the country. So three firms were chosen in Canada, in US, in Australia, in UK, and I believe India. And my firm was one of them. And I thought, this is all great. I'm very proud of myself, but it would be nice if that actually translated into money. Uh, And I was working already so hard in taxis, and I worked sometimes weekends, which I always hated because weekends are for families, For and that's one of my non-negotiables now as well. And so I thought, you know, something has to change. And I came across this training for proactive tax reduction. It's a specific training. It's not something that's taught naturally. And sometimes CPAs and EAs, whatever the license is, sometimes it takes them decades to gather that knowledge to be able to offer that. But offering it is one thing. Selling it is another thing. What I realized was that with an hourly rate, with selling your time, there will always be a ceiling in terms of how much you can make. And that realization kind of stopped me in my my tracks. And I thought, I don't want there to be a limit. I don't want to work like that. (laughs) And the problem with accountants is that we care about our clients' businesses. We It's not a problem. It's a good thing, I guess. But we really care, and we take it personally. We invest ourselves into clients' businesses and lives, and we feel bad for them, and and so on. The problem, the bad side of that, or the I guess the flip side of of that coin, is that we give a lot of our knowledge and time away for free, and that's not just to you know. Lawyers have no issue charging for fifteen minutes of their time when a client calls. Accountants somehow. Do and it shouldn't be that way. And most traditional accountants are in that space, but there is a way out there as well. And it took me probably about three months after that notification in September of 2018 to realize that I need to change something because my kids already at the time, this was, you know, four years ago, were saying, Oh, mommy always works. And I, and that's not what I wanted. I wanted, you know, we start businesses to be free to manage our own time, to manage our own life. But then we end up being prisoners of our own business. And that's not what I want or ever wanted. And that's not what anyone who starts a business wants, especially moms. We want to be there for our kids. And that's what was important for me. But yet I ended up in that same prison. And um, I came across the two coaches. Um, they specifically coach CPAs, accountants, to transform their practices, and again, I thought, what can a coach possibly teach someone like me? Like I know it all already, but let's see. So I attended you know huge egos of course uh, for accountants, so anyway, so I uh, listened in to um, on listen in at a session, they had a free session for everyone, and I really liked what they were saying, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I signed up for that program. I actually couldn't afford it at the time. Um, got a new credit card. I charged it on a credit card and I thought I'm going to do that and never look back. I'm going to just go for it. I'm going to make the best of it. And I'm every coach's dream. I'm a student that implements everything. And so, and listens to and implements everything. So I didn't know that uh, when I joined, but anyway, nevertheless, I actually joined that program and at the same time joined a tax reduction training as well. And it was transformational for me, for my life, for my business, for my kids. I actually set boundaries with clients. I actually set up a system of pricing clients. Within a year, I doubled my revenue. Uh, Within two years, I tripled my revenue. And right now I'm actually at a quadruple rate of my revenue at the time. And with an accounting business that's a virtual business, you don't have a huge overhead. Just um, obviously people, payments, I guess, salaries and etc. And and now I actually work a lot less. Off season I work 2 days a week in the business, sometimes less. And I that's in that same year in 20 well 2018 was was when I joined, but when I finished was May of 2019 and in August I joined the workshop to write a book. And I've been very busy for the last 2-3 uh, years but not running this accounting business. And when you talk about value, um there is actually a really interesting I always uh, remind myself of that. It's not a, it's not a joke. It's more of an anecdote, I guess, a story uh, where a ship company uh, couldn't get a ship to work. The engine, they've tried everything, fixing the engine. And then they called someone. Do you know that one? Uh, they, <laughs> they called someone who like knocked in a few, pl- examined, knocked in a few places, charged them $10,000. And when they asked for a breakdown. They said knocking on the engine, $2, nine thousand nine ninety eight is knowing where to knock. And that's the same with every professional service. You're not paying for my time. You're paying for my experience. If it takes me five minutes to get it done, but it took me 10 years to learn, I'm not going to charge you for four minutes. I'm going to charge you for the value that it provides to you. Um, that's the mindset shift uh, that I experienced. But also there was this woman in my coaching group. She's actually worked with a coach before um, I joined. She was in their first cohort. And I remember talking to her and she also had a child, has a child. And I remember talking to her and I'm like, uh, and she says, listen, I had this situation like a month ago. A client comes to me September 15th, which is the extended due date for business returns is on Monday. The client comes in, calls me, uh, a potential client calls me on a Friday night saying they owe so much in tax. What can you do? And so she spent Saturday analyzing and running the numbers. She spent Sunday meeting with them and doing the work, finalizing it for Monday. And she said, well, I was going to charge them whatever, like X. But then I realized that I solved their problem. I got them to pay less. Great. But who's going to solve my problem of missing a weekend with my child? And that really resonated with me. I was like, damn she's right. Who's going to solve my problem? I work for you over the weekend. But then if something happens to me, you'll turn around and hire another accountant in a blink of an eye. Nobody cares. And so that was really a moment when I realized that I can no longer proceed in, in this manner. And this year, this season is the season when I actually decided to refer out all of the once a year clients. So I have about maybe 15 of them, tax returns once a year lots of hand holding lots of babysitting um and honestly not that big of a return so i decided to to just uh, refer them out somewhere else and and have a better better life for me and my family and do what i want to do which is speak write and do some taxes on the, on the side too <laughs>
0: And focusing on the clients that are true clients that you have year round and you're their advisor, not a, a a one hit, hey, do my taxes. All right. Talk to you next year.
1: Exactly. And that's that's the work that's really meaningful. And I am excited to do that work because I see how transformational it is for them. That's what really excites me to see the full circle for, for their journey, to, to see, oh, remember we did that work a year ago. I finally see the result of it and it feels really good. And now I have a business that actually supports my family and I can rely on.
0: Oh, I love it. The, so, so the next thing we need to do is a business, we need to assess our risks and you call it sink or sail factors. What do, you, what do you mean by sink or sail factors? And how does a SWOT analysis help us with that?
1: So sink or sail factors just come from ships. Um, and there are a couple of stories where it's, um, that I tell in the book about well-known situations, I guess, when a ship that was labeled unsinkable actually sank, Uh, not Titanic, a different ship, (laughs) and a ship that was said to never sail actually um, sailed because it was done right. And so understanding your strengths and weaknesses, and those can be both internal and external, is critical because... um, I think that it all has to do with psychology and mindset. If you're ready to attack um, that weakness or that threat, you know what to do. And I actually learned this. Uh, it's not in my book because it's not mine, but um, I learned this concept of the crisis response curve from Mike Michalowicz. Mike McAlowitz is the author of Profit First, which is a very well-known book. He's an author of many other books, but um, that by far was the most impactful one for me and my clients. And um, Mike Michalowicz really he talks about this crisis response curve that kind of starts high up with a shock stage. So when pa- the pandemic happened, people were in shock. Then the next uh stage kind of going down the line is actually called a desperate action. So first it's the state of shock, then is desperate action, and then it kind of bottoms out at the evaluation stage. Um and so then the curve kind of tilts upward and we move into move into deliberate action uh planning and deliberate action and then kind of growth from there um and so the idea is that by knowing your SWOT which is strength, weaknesses opportunities and threats where strengths and weaknesses are internal characteristics and opportunities and threats are external characteristics it's some a concept that's uh, taught in, in the MBA program and it's pretty well known but the idea by, of, of you knowing those before you move forward, before you start, before or as you start, and having a plan of action, if that happens, what do we do? You get to skip the shock and the desperate action, which is detrimental to your business um, and move right into evaluation. Okay, what do we do? In, you know during in, when the pandemic first happened, a lot of restaurants were hurt significantly and especially in New York City it was um, the restaurant industry was just uh slaughtered it's it's awful but in Jersey in um, New York State the rest of New York state and Connecticut now that's where I live so that's kind of how I know many restaurants moved right into evaluation and then said okay <clears throat> let's take a step back what can we do to keep operating what can where what costs can we cut what what do we need to adjust in our operations to deliver maybe takeout or do cooking classes for our fev- for people's favorite dishes or whatever? And those who moved quickly actually were the ones that succeeded. And it took different forms. Some restaurants would give you ingredients and do a cooking class for you on Zoom so that you cook your favorite food yourself. Uh, Some restaurants just really pushed delivery and closed down all all of dine-in operations. But those who closed or shut down completely were the ones that didn't move fast enough from the shock and the desperate action into valuation and unfortunately had to shut down.
0: How do you go about, if you've never done this before, right? How do you see what those... Risks are. How do you see what those threats are, and how do you know what you don't know?
1: That's the tricky part. Uh, that's something that requires work and sometimes a coach. And it doesn't have to be an expensive coach. It can be a group coaching memberships setup where it's a lot cheaper. That's why it's a group coaching. But also, it's very helpful the, to have the ability to ask a question. But um, and that's kind of what I did when you know when I moved. Out of the CPA firm, I had two people on my speed dial that were very experienced CPAs. And anytime I encountered a situation that I did not know uh, or wasn't familiar with, let's say um, a non-US person owning property in the US, I called them and I was like, "Is there anything I need to watch out for in any election or anything that I don't don't want to miss?" And so having advisors that are willing to support you, and sometimes they can be free advisors. And I've certainly had clients who, when they started out, they had such great relationships with their former bosses that those bosses were advising them on how to build a business better and were advising them of the, of these, I guess, traps so that they can fall into, uh, read a lot, explore a lot, look at competitors' businesses. Um, you obviously will not be able to know exactly what's going on in their business, but, but at least reading a lot of Research and a lot of, um, analyzing needs to happen. i also discussing it with someone. I found, and this, this is my recent discovery in the last few months. I found that I've hired a life coach last year. I've hired a life coach because I went through the life coaching school and I really enjoyed it and the coach was great. And, um, because I went through the school, the coach's rates were, were much better. So I was like, you know what? I want to be happier. Let me talk to this guy. So we've been talking for about two or three months. And I was like, I was coming to a session uh, after that. And I thought, I don't really have anything. I've already kind of solved everything that I wanted to solve. And I was like, what if I just use this session as a creative session? So when we talk about, because, you know, a coach, a real coach, um, coaching itself is not telling people what to do. Coaching is me as a coach, asking you questions to get that out of you, to get the resource out of you to help yourself, essentially. That's what coaching is. In the US, coaching is more coaching advisory, coaching consulting, where it's a mixture of questions and kind of me telling you what to do, which is fine. But here's the thing, when you discuss something like that, when you discuss a business idea or your business with someone, a friend or a relative, a spouse, what can end up happening, and it's certainly what has happened to me, is um, they start to solve your problem. They uh, listen to you carefully and then they try to solve it because they want to help you. And that's normal. That's, that's fine. That's natural response. The problem is that for me, it's not the, you solve my problem. I want to solve it myself. I want to find the right decision that works for me. And sometimes it's appropriate for um, someone who's listening to you to say, have you tried this or have you considered that? And sometimes it happens with a friend or relative, but more often than not, they um, try to solve your problem. With a coach, and I've actually, am now doing it with two or three people once a month. So I have a different coach talking through something at the session, something that's creative. For example, I was really dreading creating a webinar. I'm launching a bookkeeping course, a bookkeeper training uh, this year, and I wanted to create a webinar to provide people with value at the webinar and then sell them the course if that's what what they want. And I was dreading preparing that webinar. Like I didn't know where to start. How do I even provide value? What do I even do? And so I used one session with one coach and another session with another coach to listen to me and to ask me questions. And then as I did that, I actually both sessions in each session I created a webinar one for the bookkeeping course sale and one for the mastermind that I'm launching later this year. And so now I have the structure, the skeleton, uh, because I wouldn't have been able to do that on my own or it would take me year, uh, maybe not years, but months and a lot of heartbreak and a lot of anxiety. And am I doing the right thing? And am I, is it aligned with my brand? Is it aligned with my message? All of those things with a coach, they just listen to you and they ask you questions. What do you think that people will benefit from? And then you start thinking about it and you start discussing it without the coach trying to solve your problem for you. And that's, I think, is super valuable. So if you have the ability and you're listening, um, you have the ability to hire someone like that, even if it's one, once a month. And for me, it's once a month, a session that's creative, that keeps me in line with my goals, with my brand, with my work, is has been tremendously um, tr- helpful for, for me and my business.
0: And you talk in the book about an exercise you did with the coach with a hat exercise. And it was very valuable for you and your business. Can you share with the people what that exercise was and what you learned from it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The exercise was the coaches gave us this sheet of all of the different aspects of a business. So a marketing and operations, sales, uh, support, whatever, customer service, and I was looking at that. And it was a pretty big, you know, about six columns, about I don't know, five, six rows, so sub roles, I guess, for each of the aspects. So in in marketing, it would be let's say Facebook ad manager, online business manager, or whatever, all of the different things. And as I was looking at it for my tax business, I mean, it changed later, and I'll explain why. But as I was looking at it, I realized. I really enjoyed working with people. The coaching aspect is what I really enjoyed. The putting numbers into a tax return, not so much. And honestly, if the books are done correctly, if the bookkeeping is done perfectly, preparing a tax return is not hard. It's the gathering of the work papers. It's the everything else. That's the time consuming part that can be delegated. They don't, people don't need to have a CPA to organize work papers for a tax return. And so when I looked at that sheet, I saw only maybe two or three areas out of, I don't know, 25, 30 that I really wanted to keep doing. And everything else, I was like, I hate it. (sighs) And and that's when I thought, oh my God, like, and before that, I had this mindset of, I just want to be on my own. Like, I don't want to hire anyone. My husband always said he's been a manager at a big company before switching to another company. And he's been through all of that. And he always said, you know, when you hire people, their headaches become yours. And so kind of knowing that I always thought, okay, I'm just going to be on my own. I'm not going to hire anyone. But when when I did that exercise, what I realized was that if I do this on my own, I will never be free. And that's when it dawned on me that I need to hire someone. And that year I actually hired an assistant and now she's bookkeeper, bookkeeper and also does some tax entry work and paper, and work paper organization. I've certainly hired other bookkeepers and, and accountants for my business, but that's what that exercise was about. And for me, and I even created a version of it for my book because of how transformational it was for me. And I think that this exercise is important to be done early into your business, that analysis, because visionaries start businesses based on the painting aspect, not the taping aspect, right? And so the taping aspect is what most people hate. And here's the secret. Every job, every business has both. and But visionaries often don't think about it. You still have to deal with all the not-so-pleasant side of business or practice or whatever it is. And if you kind of have a plan of outsourcing or delegating it, even if it takes you a few years to get there, that's okay. Knowing that will help you make decisions that will drive you in that direction, which I think is super important. There was another part to your question I think I missed.
0: No, no, that, no, that was good. It, and can you, for some of those parts, you can outsource them too, right?
1: Absolutely. The, the tax planning and analysis is something that I personally do because it takes special training and also experience that most accountants that you hire will not have and it will probably take them a, year, a few years to to learn and the coaching part as well it's easy to coach um, it's easier to coach people when you have had about 17 years of experience working with small businesses because you've already seen it all and you know even before the person says oh I was tr- gonna try this you can even preempt that by saying you know I've seen people try that and here's here are potential shortfalls or potential traps that you can run into and that's really helpful. That's not something you can learn. That's something that only comes from experience.
0: So there's two things you mentioned in there that I think are worth expanding on. And one of them was you talk about the concept of a team of geniuses and also having a board of advisors when we're starting a business. And you mentioned how you have your coaches and that you had a couple advisors. So how do you differentiate between the team of geniuses The board of advisors, what's the role of each? What should sort of the composition of those teams look like, Tatiana?
1: So one of my clients who was a startup um, in 2011, I believe, or 2012, um, they're still around, they're doing amazing things. But what he secured was, he secured an accountant, a really good accountant that I, me, I helped him build projections for investors and things like that. But he also had some really good help outside of that. His employer, that was my client, which is where we met, he agreed to provide advice and, and sort of coaching as needed to my client for free. And then another person said, yes, someone who's very experienced. So you need to, you know, everybody loves to give advice. The problem is that you need to uh, make sure that the people that you recruit, and again, they can be free and unpaid mentors, uh, potentially, advisors who've been in business uh, a couple of times, maybe build several businesses. You need to ask for specific feedback and, and advice. And, you know, this is something I learned. Um, I actually just came back from training uh, for public speaking, and, and this is uh, one of the top training centers in the U.S. And what they they make it really clear in the beginning is that we as students cannot coach each other. That's the director's job. Uh, we cannot advise each other. And so when we ask for feedback, let's say I'm practicing a part of my speech that I don't feel confident in. Uh, I come in and I set the stage and I say, okay, so in this section, I'm looking to see if you can hear my through line. If there is a place where you your mind started wondering, or something like that. And similarly, when you build your board of advisors, and there is a difference between the two, the board of advisors are people who don't have a financial interest in your business. They advise you because they wanna mentor you or whatever. And they advise you and you ask for specific advice. If you ask them, and you should never do that, but if you ask them, okay, how do I make my business successful? That's not a one-hour conversation. Rather, do you think this approach or this approach would work better? What's been your experience? And sometimes, good mentor would sometimes if they see something that they're not familiar with, they'll acknowledge that. They'll say, "Listen, I'm not familiar with that, but let's see if we can find someone to to talk to us about this and figure it out for you with your help." And that's advisors. They're kind of like a satellite. That's why, kind of uh, in my book, it's it's uh, it's a dotted line going to the advisor, leading to the advisors is because of their support role. Their role is to help you in the big picture, not in the nitty gritty. The team of geniuses is really referring, I'm referring to professionals. So the right accountant, the right, sometimes attorney, sometimes you don't need an attorney, but sometimes you do with patents and um, intangibles and things like that. And also potentially someone who will deal with operations. The reality is that people who are starting out do a lot of the things themselves. And so I think that's important to have this thought or goal in mind is when you're doing it yourself, document your process. Document everything, whether create a loom video for every step or whatever, because that's essential to then find the right person into that role. And if you have the budget, you can hire professionals, your geniuses, but look for people who have passion for what they do. I think the passion is the secret ingredient to success, and that's what drives people. And that's certainly what drives me. I've always loved accounting because of what you can do with it, what you can do with numbers, with what you can, the magic that I've witnessed because of the power of numbers in businesses. And um, that's really what team team of geniuses is about. And understanding that really you have to worry about three main kind of areas of your business. One is the financial, one is the operational, and the other one I can't remember (laughs) right now um, what I put in the book because I know that it has IT and other things, support functions. But the idea is that you have it very clear. You don't need a 100 departments. I always am skeptical when people, and I have the one client right now who's in that situation, the new client, who says, well, I have this VP of marketing, I have this VP of this. Titles don't matter. What matters is that what is that person doing and are they taking responsibility for their you know department or their area of expertise, because marketing and sales includes much more than just Facebook advertising. It's customer service. It's uh, sales uh, connecting to fulfillment and things like that. So that's really kind of an important uh, part that many don't think through. And the idea is that eventually, when you think about getting your team of geniuses, or at least thinking about them early on will help you, again, drive your business where you want to go in a straight line as opposed to kind of a messy, messy curve, but hopefully moving in the the right direction.
0: And you talk about that organizational structure and building that team and not thinking about today, but thinking about where you want to be 3 to 5 years from now. Why is it so important to say, "Hey, it's not today that we're building this, for we're building it for 3 years from now, 5 years from now."
1: I just think that from my experience at least, the, there is this expression, "Hire help before you think you're ready," or something like that. But here's the problem. You don't know when you're ready. So the before uh, is like when is that? <laughs> and so that's kind of where why I wanted to to make that a point is Hire before you're ready. That sounds great in theory. In practice, um, if you know that you want to have someone managing your marketing and sales and what that person would be doing and how they're going to be reporting and what's the indicators that they need to report back to you, you will make decisions and make choices and make hiring, I guess, decisions again, based on that structure that you have in your head. You know, there is this um trend, I guess. It's not a trend. It's more like that's just how it is. In bigger companies, when crises happen, middle managers are the ones to go first, usually. And that's just the reality of life. And uh, the reason is that middle managers are just one piece of the puzzle, something that's not a critical structure. And so the reason I wanted to draw attention to planning it three to five years from now is that you see the skeleton of your organization of how it's going to work for you. And you will pay attention to the, all of the right places. You'll pay attention to all of the right potentially people needs because I've, you know, I've uh, been privy to one of my clients growth and it's been tremendous growth over the last four or five years. Problem is that they didn't think the structure through and they've just been hiring to fill the voids. And you can end up with a lot of redundant work, inefficient work as well. And you will lose money because of that. And so I'm, I'm a big pro- opponent of wasting money. And I think that by thinking through for three to five years from now, you can avoid that because you'll know exactly where the person you need will fit, fit in, I guess is the right expression. And that will help you find the right person with the right attitude and the right um, skill set for that position.
0: Love it. And so, all of this has been on the planning side of the business. And so, so now we'll dive into a couple things on the actual running the business side. It sounds like you might not be the biggest fan of partnerships, from what I could tell. What, what can you tell us more about why you're uh, why you're not a fan?
1: So, yeah, sure. That chapter on partnerships actually uh, was supposed to be called initially it was called "Partnerships Never Work." but the, the publisher didn't really like that title. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, it's my, my core belief that true partnerships rarely work out. And by true partnership, here's what I mean. You can have a partnership where one partner is the driver and then two, three, five partners are investors. So they're limited partners. They don't run the day-to-day. They don't make decisions. They don't really participate in the operations. Then you can have a partnership. But then it's not a partnership in the full sense of the word, and so that's kind of the starting the starting point there. But true partnerships, where there are two active, two or more active partners managing the business, will rarely work. I mean, fifty percent of marriages break up, right? About fifty percent. And so my client uh, called uh, partnerships because he was screwed by a partner. So he said, when I told him that I actually have a chapter in my book that says, don't do partnerships. He actually said, yeah, partnership is like a marriage just without the benefits. And so I totally agree with him because you have to, you know, when you get married, you have infatuation, you have love or whatever, uh, hopefully. And even then 50% of marriages break up because you're living with another person. When you have a partnership, you work, you spend more time with that other person sometimes than you do with your own family. And so Finding a soulmate in business is utopia. It's almost, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Just like finding a perfect partner, there's no perfect person. If, if there was, they'll, they would all be saints and that's not how the world works. And so with partnerships, I've seen my share of them. And as I worked for a CPA firm, I've seen quite a few break up and usually money is involved. So when everything is all good, typically the partnerships are strong and kicking. But as soon as some downturn in the economy or cash strain or mismanagement of cash or a theft or something where there's not enough cash to make payroll or something like that, that's when the problems start. And usually it's downhill from there. And that's kind of why I'm not not at all a fan of partnerships. I think that a lot of people, especially women for some reason, And I have uh, my speculation on what the reasons are, but especially women and men too get into those traps, try to leverage this, oh, I don't like math uh, or I don't like to deal with the financial side. I'm just going to keep selling and you deal with the other stuff. So they try to leverage this fear because it makes them feel safe and soft and taken care of. The problem is that oftentimes it doesn't work. And especially if somebody else has access to your financial stuff, has control over it, sometimes you can end up not only hurt, but bankrupt. And this client of mine that uh, said that uh, that, mar- that it's almost like marriage, he actually came one day to his shop and found it completely cleaned out, his QuickBooks access removed. The guy was never nowhere to be found. And another client, the new client that I just um, onboarded last month, actually had the same exact situation. Thankfully, that person didn't have any ownership in the business. They were just kind of like a right hand, but paid right hand. But they took out QuickBooks access, CRM access, they stopped connections to their uh, sales leads. I mean, they really hurt the business. And so seeing all of that, when people come to me and they're like, we want to start a business together, we love doing this and and whatever, I'm like, okay, guys, like you really need to learn more about each other first. (laughs) And so I'm not a big fan. Absolutely not.
0: Sorry, I had it muted. Uh, One of the other alternatives we talked about is getting investors. And I thought what your Fred Frank said to you was super valuable when he said that everyone should try to raise funds at least once because you need to know or you need the ability to sell your vision. Can you tell us about that and what your thoughts were on it?
1: Yeah, Frank is one of my dear, dear clients. He's amazing and he's had an amazing journey in his business. has really grown so much over the past 10 years. And in the first few years of his business, he was uh, trying to secure, an, wh- whether it was an angel or a VC investment for his platform. And the platform is pretty cool, pretty significant. It has to do with technology and valuing the uh, social media appearance of celebrities and just models or whatever. So because typically what happens is, and he worked in fashion before for my client, for my other client, What he saw was that when modeling agencies rent models for photo shoots, and those models have a pretty significant following, it's really hard to quantify the value of that following. So let's say a model puts a picture of herself on social media, or a celebrity for that matter, in a dress, or in that brand's, with that brand's computer, or whatever, I don't know. There's value to that, because it's impressions, it's free advertising. So there's definitely value to that. And this software platform that Frank has developed actually puts a dollar value on that so that modeling agencies and talent agencies and celebrities and, and et cetera, et cetera, can actually say, well, I will do this partnership with you, paid partnership or whatever. But then also there's this much money that I'm going to charge you for the value of my social media promotion of, because I have all this following, I have all this attention. It's like paying for the impressions on Facebook advertising, but you're paying the celebrity or whatever to actually do that for you. And sometimes it's more organic advertising than just simple sponsored posts. And so he was raising funds. He now has two businesses, which is what I've encouraged, uh, two different businesses. And he said he went to about 120, maybe more, different Shark Tank types of events. And he was like initially, you know, people because everybody loves giving advice, initially everybody would listen to it and say it's a great idea, da-da-da, and here's what you need to change. And then, you know, after he like he invested a little time in that, he he said, What I've realized was that everybody gives me this advice, free advice, and and I asked this one investor, if I incorporate your changes, will you invest in my company? Will you write me a check? And the answer was no. So then he stopped doing that, and that's really amazing, I think, uh, and a good lesson to learn for for all of us that you need to be able to. And I was against investors when I was writing the book, but because I interviewed Frank for the book and his experience with investors, I actually changed my mind. I think he's absolutely right. I think that you have to be able to have one person say, "I'm going to write you a check because I really like your idea. I wouldn't be involved," and that's where it's it really tells you, okay, validate it. Your idea is good. Maybe it needs more growth and improvement and et cetera, but somebody's somebody's willing to be a part of that and actually put their money into it. And so I think that's phenomenal, phenomenal tool that everyone should use. And not be afraid that your idea will be stolen because honestly, to implement even a Facebook-like success, it takes, it doesn't happen overnight as much as a Silicon Valley sometimes one, wants you to believe it does not happen overnight. It takes sometimes years to get to a point of a success and venture capital and whatever and cashing out. And
0: so before someone takes on an investor, what are some of the questions you want them to ask themselves?
1: I would love for you to know why you need an investor. Why do you need the money? Is it to invest in technology and uh, something that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise? Great. If that's the case. It's a good way to do that, but if it's um, to fund your operations, then it's a problem because operations will continue happening month after month, and if you need a one-time cash infusion, you can end up disappointed. And I certainly, I certainly describe a couple of those cases that I've worked with where this drive of growing the top line at all costs resulted in a huge disappointment financial disappointment as well um, you keep investing in advertising and etc sometimes you need that for some products and i've i've been looking at i don't watch tv much cuz i don't have time for it but there you can pay attention to the advertisements when they're really pushing to get over that hurdle so you know typically the i guess the technology and not only i don't think it applies to technology but any new idea that adaptation of the idea or adoption of the idea, I guess. Adoption of the idea is a curve that starts slow and it goes really low and really kind of slow until it reaches a critical point where it takes off in the upward direction. So sometimes I understand the need for a new product to get to that, to get brand recognition, to get demand and, and things like that. So I understand that. But if you're funding operations because you're losing money because you've hired too many people or whatever, then it's a bad use of investor money. And another question that you should ask yourself is how much control am I losing? Um, you know, I explain in the book the difference between angel investors and, v- and VCs, which is venture capitalists. And oftentimes, I mean, the trend is shifting slightly, but oftentimes you will have VCs basically take a bigger chunk, give you more money and tell you what to do. And really sometimes you can end up losing this alignment with your values because of that, because the venture capitalists tell you what to do because they're giving you money. Um, And then your brand can become something that you didn't Expect or want to happen, and I think that it's important to keep in mind. Angel investors sometimes you can secure pretty significant angel investment beyond the normal, you know, seven fifty to million to a few million. I recently was at this event where one of the women um, talks about investing in that anyone can be an angel investor, and she was talking about the startup that she was involved in that collected 35 million of angel investments, which, which is great, which means that there are a lot of people involved, a lot of angels involved. and what angels don't want is to tell you what to do. They're providing the guidance, they're providing their expertise, their experience, and it's available to you as the board of advisors, that satellite. but, but they also don't tell you what they want to tell you what to do, and they also keep a smaller chunk of your company. And so that could be potentially a really good way of securing the money that you need but you have to have a clear goal of how that money will be spent. Because I've certainly seen this idea of becoming the next Facebook, but I worked for, the, for a guy who built a new platform, but somewhere halfway through the process, the investor said, we're not going to fund this anymore. And they've committed, at that point, I think it was a million dollars and they've only funded about 250 or 300. And they pulled out because it wasn't going the direction that they wanted. So you have to not fund operations with the money. That's the quicksand.
0: The And in there, you were mentioning marketing. I thought you had some really powerful points on price psychology that I hadn't heard of before. And the three that you mentioned were left to right reading, using a decoy and price anchoring. And I thought it would be beneficial to the listeners to to understand these because we'll know how they're using them against us. Can you share what some of these tricks are?
1: Absolutely, and I think they're powerful. They're not necessarily meant to deceive. Maybe some of them are, but uh, (laughs) but let's say the reading from left to right and placing or creating your packages from and putting the biggest one first, I think is powerful because it's it really sometimes helps you as a consumer make a better decision. And I'll explain why. So the reason um, I'll start with the fact that there the reason there are three packages is not more, not less, is because uh, when there's two choices that you offer, and this is something that I I actually did price psychology training at the same time as I did coaching, you know, uh, was coached and uh, went through the proactive tax reduction training. I found it to be very powerful. There will always be people who will want to work with you, but won't be able to afford your main offering. And your main offering should be your middle package. The reason it should be your main package is because 60% of people will buy your middle package, your main offering. But here's a problem. You will always have people who want the all-inclusive resort. I'm one of those people. Um, you will always have people who want everything. So if you only offer one thing, then people who can pay you more and get more service, for example, don't do it or pick somebody else or pay you the that main offering that you have. But there will always be people who want to work with you, but can't afford that main offering. And, and this is what I mentioned. For them, you can ha- create a package that's for you a walkaway price, which means that that's the lowest price that you can you want to offer for whatever value there is. And for me as an accounting firm, I mean, if it's possible to get done for an accounting firm, it's possible to get done for pretty much any business. What was powerful is, and this is something my coach teacher uh, t- taught teachers is that when you start a conversation with the top package, it it actually serves a couple of, I guess, uh, purposes. Purpose number one, it sets an anchor. So even if you have to go to the second package that's uh, lower priced a less value, they already know that you have this higher offering and that the next package is gonna be cheaper, but it's even if it's still expensive, technically expensive, even though I don't believe in that, and I'll explain why in a second, they'll think that it's still affordable. Well, affordable is another conversation, but they will love the next offer if they can afford it because they know that you have much more that you can offer. And also it serves another function, uh, purpose, I guess, is it actually also sets the limits in terms of their engagement with you. They know that they didn't pay the all-inclusive resort price. And so what they'll do is they will actually respect your boundaries. So for example, in my top package, I have priority service. So uh, evenings and weekends, if you need me, if it's an emergency, text me and I'll jump on it. But it's only in the top package. And when people look at the packages, they see that. So if they choose the next package, the middle one, they know that they can't expect the same service. So it really also manages their expectations, which I think is very powerful. And so um, I actually struggled in my lowest package for some time, developing it. And the reason there's three is because when you have two, people are cornered, kind of have to make a choice, yes or no, and they end up sometimes not choosing at all. When you have more than three, when you have four, you know, sometimes software has like four different, and you're like, I have no idea what to choose. You're confused, you're overwhelmed, and you end up again, not choosing the package. Also knowing that 60% of people statistically buy your middle offer tells you that offer should be filled with value. It should also have a price that you're willing to sell that for because you're going to be selling a lot of those, more than half, and they should be priced with your target profit in mind. And what that means is if you sell this package 60% of the time, it should be high enough of a price for you to make it worth your while. Something that's sustainable that you can sustain with your current staff, or if you have to hire someone, then potentially raise prices. And I actually believe in raising prices like all the time. Not so great for groceries and gas prices, but anyway, I think that it's really powerful to to raise prices. And I've I don't onboard a lot of clients, but when I onboard clients, I, I raise my prices every two clients that I onboard, because I feel like, okay, we're doing all of this. I feel like it really is much more expensive than it was before. And so that's really...
0: Sorry, every two clients, you raise the price. And what, do you do it on a dollar basis? Do you do it on a percent basis? I think this is something that is immensely valuable right here.
1: I actually, so I'll give you an example. So my um, current top package... And there are more expensive packages that I sell that are just tailored to the client. So when I do a concierge done-for-you service uh, where I support the client's accounting staff, I drive their CFO function and their tax function as well, typically it's much more than that. But for a typical small business, uh, my top package is $3,500. And that's an all-inclusive resort, a month. For that, you get support, you get coaching, you get a, a lot of different things. The middle package used to be, and this price used to be about 2,500 about a year and a half ago. My middle package was at 1250 for a long time. And then I saw, uh, I thought to myself, I do all this work, but I feel like, uh, we do all this work and I feel like it's a little too little for that work. So I raised it to 1,500. Now it's at 2,000. And then the, the lowest package, I don't really sell. I, I have it, but I don't really sell it. But um, that's kind of the idea. The idea is that as I onboarded clients, let's say last year, I realized, okay, where I'm running payroll for their kids, I'm running this and that for them, that requires more time or actually more knowledge on how to do it correctly. So it's no longer worth it or worth it for me to do it for $1,500. It's $2,000. When plus, so it's not two thousand, and that's it it's two thousand plus. I certainly have clients who pay eight to ten thousand dollars a month, depending again on my function in their business um, and the support that I provide. but the main three packages I always raise price because I don't onboard a lot of clients because i it's my preference to work with less clients because that's how, that's how I can personally coach them and personally be a part of their transformation and contribute to that transformation significantly, and that is very valuable. And I think that as my time becomes more and more valuable, I feel like that price in the packages has to go up too.
0: Oh, I love that. That's so, so wonderful for you and uh, for people to hear, because so many of us get in that trap, right? We're selling our time and it's like, I'm worth this much an hour. And it's like, well, no, what value are you adding? How is your hammer tapping that ship? And then when you are realizing it saying, okay, well, clearly I underestimated. Let's go up. I love that. The, and I, we've taken, I've taken a fair amount of your time here, and we've had a wide-ranging conversation on your book. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is fundamental you want to get across to people?
1: Sure. This is um, actually my big idea, my recent work. And by recent, I mean last six to eight months. I've been working on this. I'm working on a TEDx talk, and my big idea is that entrepreneurship is a whole brain craft. So it's a two-part idea. First, entrepreneurship is a craft. And what that means is that you can learn it. It's a system of steps that anyone can learn to be good at and to do really well. And uh, I think the secret to really mastering this craft, it's a craft just like anything else, like writing a book or delivering a stellar speech. Entrepreneurship is, is a craft that requires a whole brain approach. So you need the vision. That's how the businesses start. It, need, it starts with a vision. It starts with uh, with the dream. But then it has to be supported by the left side, the logical side, the linear thinking, the safe, I guess, safety, financial safety thinking, left side of the brain. And my experience has been that businesses that are super successful have both. It doesn't mean that they're led by accountants. It means that they have their own understanding of how their business numbers. What story they tell them and how they can use these numbers to really drive every decision in their business. And it doesn't mean that if it's, if the numbers tell you, um, no, that you don't take the risk. Sometimes you do, but you also with the understanding and knowledge of these numbers using and harnessing their power, you can, like I invested in that coach, not being able to afford it at the time. I knew that I'm going to make it work because it was a conscious choice. And so that's really what I, something I believe in and something that I'm working on now. And I wanted to share.
0: Love it. The, and so where can our listeners find you?
1: I think the best place to connect with me is check out my website, talktotatiana.com. It's a little shortcut. it takes you to tatiana.com. So you don't have to memorize my last name, spelling. And I am present on all social media platforms, but I really live on Instagram. So if you want to DM or connect, uh, I'll be happy to do that on Instagram. Tatiana Sawyer.author is my handle.
0: Excellent. Thank you for joining us on the pursuit of learning. Really appreciated having you and reading your book. Lots of notes that I took for myself there and this is what I do on a daily basis, so it was it was very valuable. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Clint.
0: Thank you for joining us on the pursuit of learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.